Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2017 AWP conference in Washington, D.C. The recording features Beth Bachman, Rick Barrett, Deborah Landau, and Jericho Brown. You will now hear Beth Bachman provide introductions. So we really appreciate you coming out to hear some poetry. And I know that all four of us want to thank the Guggenheim Foundation for bringing us together to celebrate this year, uh, which is really a gift that we've been given to think and write. And so we just want to share with everyone the kind of things we've been thinking and writing about, or even the kind of work that led us to this point. Um, I'm going to introduce everyone, and then I'll read first and turn things over. uh, And I'll introduce them in the order they will read after I read, and I'm going to keep it short, um, you know, so we can get on to the good stuff. Rick Barrett's latest book is Cord from Saraban Books, and he teaches at Pacific Lutheran University in Tacoma, Washington, where he directs the low-residency MFA program. Deborah Landau's most recent book is The Uses of the Body from Copper Canyon. She teaches in and directs the creative writing program at New York University. Jericho Brown's most recent book is the New Testament from Copper Canyon as well, and he is an associate professor of English and creative writing at Emory. And I'm Beth Bachman, and I teach at the MFA program at Vanderbilt in Nashville, and my most recent book is Do Not Rise from Pittsburgh Press. And I'll kick things off. Um, Yeah, let's see. Um, So this is my little book about revolution, Do Not Rise, so I want to read a poem in honor of our present moment. Crisis. The air is hot and then it's cold. The water wants out, so open your mouth and say snow. The water wants out right there on the tongue. The flaw is always breaking away. Watch the fire. It wants out of the place so it splinters like insects out of a hole you pour light into. Fragment, then drift or alarm. Hydra. Of the war, we said, the water has many heads Destroy one and two more ripen, thirsty flowers. Winter is not a threat. Here in this heat, it takes so long for the head and body to rise in constellation. It's daylight, the silver white birds gone black. Most things in nature have no meaning. Still, we wondered how, if the answer was fear or love to kill. The cup, always an offer, prisoner. Still, water is like leaves, a sound trap. I'm going to read the title poem. The title actually comes at the end of this poem instead of the beginning, and it's a line from a 
John Donne poem, Daybreak, where one lover says to the other, stay, oh sweet, and do not rise. But I was also thinking about Cassius Clay singing Stand By Me, and when he sings it, he slips and sings Stand Down, Stand By Me. So the book is really about surrender, both in war and in love. And it starts with a paraphrase from the U.S. Army Field Manual, Kill or Get Killed. So it kind of traverses a lot of territory in a short amount of time. Copperhead. Struck properly, the windpipe is copper tubing. I woke wanting a fitting all over my green eyes, pennies on my eyes. But summer was long October. The snake had plenty of places to hide, uncorroded and not yet slowed by cold. The second I say, put your hands on the back of your head, look at me, not the weapon, force me to open my hand. We've been in love for some time now, remember? What did you say? Surrender, do not rise. Why your room has a door. It's not the shore, it's the ocean that opens. Devil, make a mountain of me for the water to dwell against. I became aware of my methods, and the methods changed me. Soldier, you make my body a map on the floor. It's what the door is for. Hesitation, a hand that wants to be a mouth panting pasture, food, an ear that dogs a woman. Water, hammer, wrap your wrist. At parting, I insist you call me by my first name. So that's my book about war. And then afterwards, I wrote a book about peace, because you can't have peace without war. So they go together. And it's framed, this new book is called Cease, and it's framed by these four long poems, each called Wall. And I want to read the first of those wall poems. And then tomorrow, we can all go march against the wall. But for now, you can listen for this like hidden Robert Frost line that sneaks into this poem. Wall. To keep the peace, we need a wall to fall to our knees before, to all things and architecture, each body its own boundary, the air, deliberate, so many moves between one opening, careful, to keep the wall clear of camouflage, clear in its threat. So many patterns have holes, a hand, an arm, a child netting a wall will not allow less than enough guard her prisoner. Head down and hungry your skin. I remember as against, not over, 
the wall in place of the blood. The wall, after all, made of water. The gulf, a blue we could touch on both ends. Given clearance to return what's left of the body now. Bridge, simple arch, geometry of the circle spanning come. Cool my tongue. This light well opening internal space to the space that opens into it. Wind, I, the flood, made our bodies a levee, earthen, gnawed away. Something there is that does not once, but it no longer holds the tongue of the fire, roars for water, but boundaries now are made instead of oil. The fire spits and splits. Why set the self aflame when we can do it together? The whole world hanging in the air in all directions, the direction to go straight on at the end of a movement without pause, the wall so simple in war, enough dirt to go over the top singing, finish me first. A wall to run along your fingers, to let bear the weight of execution on one side, stilled now the other, a garden, interior, courtyard, more insects than fruit, both segmented. Sugar does not obey the wall. It wants a thousand mouths, yours, mine, from inside the fruit, the strain, release me, the strain, deserter, the wall, black, juice, only skin. Around every corner, we met the nameless wall, sometimes with head, sometimes with spit, too beautiful to be left alone, some dead prefer stone to see. We imagine snow here and there, the wall less erasure, a thing only the living desire rests in ownership. Property, according to water, is rhythmic. Trust the wall. It is not a window, hole in the stone you cannot go through. The view from the wall is the wall, Rope slipping around a rope, a new knot each time the rope goes through. Light is not out the window. Here it is heat. Glass is domesticated, two private dwellings separated by a bad mouth, an earlobe, a sparrow, sunshine. The only way out, a big fat bomb glow. There's a lesson for everything you'd ever want to make or destroy, a lesson in placement, a lesson in timing, a lesson in pressure, a lesson in too much, a lesson in longing to be, let be, ignition. What was it anyway? The wall so light, now so much sand. You'd think, no, it can't go on and on and on and on like that. No blue at the tip of it, no blue to undo, nothing to see. No other side so far as the eye can see. <laughs> All right, I just want to read a few of the short ones. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not ready. Yet. No, um, of, uh, which come between in this new manuscript cease. So, in between these wall poems, I was writing what I was calling unpunctuated prose poems. But then I was thinking, like, 
If they have no punctuation, they have no sentences, and sentences are like the basic unit of prose, so they're actually not like prose at all. So I've started to think of them more as like a stanza-based form, and um, you know, stanza comes from the word room, which makes sense because I surrounded them in like these four walls, but I like didn't get it as I was writing the book. So you know how it is with writing, sometimes you have to do it to figure out what you did. So I'm just going to end with a couple of these ones that have no punctuation, so I'm still figuring out like where to breathe or if to breathe as I read them. This one is a riff on a line from Robert Duncan, which I think kind of could be describing our president. And the quote from Duncan is, Shakespeare sees how in the assassin's mind the world is filled with enemies. The truth itself is enemy and quickens action to override subversive thought. To the assassin, truth is the enemy. It's over. The best part about terror is territory. Together we opened the border. You're trembling, you said. Like fire, I said. The field seemed whole again. It contained me and my womb. It shook for a moment. We did not own anything. What we could see of the world was the field, and it appeared to be everywhere. The enemy had many bright places to hide. Beauty. The horse would not, no matter how many times its head I held underwater, I rolled up my sleeve, I cracked my lipstick with my canine teeth, I held my arm out to sign. The horse had feelings, a will cowgirl, an American dream, a diamond on its face, my hand, its hair, my voice, its ear, asking it, drink, Hollywood, the horse would not, no way, no how, cowboy, the moon, bullseye, baby, my money face down on the table, the threat, the border, peace there, peace here, sheriff. And one more. Overcome. The bloodshot eye cannot swallow any more red. Sunset rose after sunset rose in the mouth of the field. Godless, we sleep like animals, unmoved by moth head. I need water to see again. I need to see the water again. I need you to wake to witness what the water can smother. My heart is blue like fire. I made you an ocean pure enough to drink before breaking. Why is your heart like the sky, symmetry. I don't need my hands to say anything. Your hands are also clean. Thank you. Hi everyone, I'm Rick Barrett. Can you hear me? Is that good? All right. I'm really excited to be reading with these other poets up here. Um, I'm going to read one poem from my recent book, Chord, and then read some other uh, poems, which are newer. 
Uh, this first poem that I'm reading is called The Wooden Overcoat, and the, the trigger for this poem was reading a novel about 19th century mining in Montana. And I came across this phrase because it was being used as a euphemism for coffins. And I, I thought, there, there's got to be a poem in there somewhere. So this is that poem, The Wooden Overcoat. It turns out that there's a difference between a detail and an image. If a dandelion is a mere detail, the dandelion inked on a friend's bicep is an image because it moves when her body does. Even when a shirt covers the little black sun on a thin stalk. The same way that the barcode on the back of another friend's neck is just a detail until you hear that the row of numbers underneath are the numbers his grandfather got on his arm in a camp in Poland. Then it's an image, something activated in the reader's senses beyond mere fact. I know the difference doesn't matter except in poetry, where a coffin is just another coffin until someone at a funeral calls it a wooden overcoat, an image that is so heavy and warm at the same time that you forget it's about death. At my uncle's funeral, the coffin was so beautiful, it was like the chandelier lighting the room where treaties are signed. It made me think of how loved he was. It made me think of Shoshone funerals, where everything the dead person owned was put into a bonfire, even their horse. In that last sentence, is the horse a detail or an image? I don't really know. In my mind, a horse is never anywhere near a fire, and a detail is as luminous as an image. The trumpet vine, the fence, the clothes, the fire. So these are new poems. And it, it is a privilege to uh, thank the Guggenheim Foundation for the amazing fellowship that they gave me. This next poem is about Louis Vuitton. So, <laughs> just so you know. The girl carrying a ladder. On the same day I read about the luxury goods company that has produced a punching bag you can buy for $175,000, I see the photograph of the Palestinian girl who carries a ladder with her each morning when she goes to school. To scale the wall of my own understanding of why a punching bag would cost so much, I have to think about why I'm attracted to that punching bag the way some people are attracted to pink kittens, or the way some people are attracted to camouflage, or the way some people are attracted to their gods. I want that punching bag the way the girl carrying the ladder wants to go to school, relentless, single-minded, and absurd. 
carrying the ladder that is twice or three times as tall as she is, leaning the wall, leaning the ladder against the wall that separates her from her school. The girl goes up the ladder as though it is something she does every day, which she does. When I think of a punching bag, I think of sex. When I think of a ladder, I think of picking apples. When I think of a girl carrying the ladder to go to school, I think of my neighborhood's girls carrying pink camouflage backpacks, not knowing about the armies that the camouflage stands for. The logo of the luxury brand is printed all over that punching bag the way camouflage is all over us. Camouflage bed sheets, camouflage cell phone covers, camouflage shirts and neon shirts that everyone wears, even the people who vote against guns. We live in paradox and we prosper. We live in paradox and we thrive. What I can't figure out is how the girl deals with the barbed wire at the top of the wall she has to go over, or what that ladder weighs, or what she does with the ladder when she gets to school. Does she put it against the wall with the other ladders, the way kids put their bikes in bike racks at school? What I can't figure out is why two men who look like gods would want to break down the wall of each other's faces, knowing there is only blood on the other side, or why apples are the fruit that children bring to their teachers, and why it isn't coconuts or grapefruit, or why my neighborhood's girls, on their way to school each morning, carry backpacks that are so heavy, it looks like they are carrying the world. Those punching bags came in a limited edition of 25. You get a jump rope with it. And I really did want it. But, but even my Guggenheim money wouldn't have covered the cost. This next poem that I'm going to read is, is, uh, is important to me in that I just recently decided that it was going to be the title poem for my next manuscript. And there are a few things I need to say about it. Uh, I'm going to rattle off a bunch of French names, and I don't speak French, and so I'm going to butcher some of them. Uh, Jacqueline Woodson appears in the poem at some point. Um, this morning I went to a panel on poetry and history. And my very good friend Brian Tier was part of the panel. And he said something during his talk that felt like the epigraph for this poem. He said, research is a kind of mourning. And so this poem is very much driven by, by research. And hopefully I'll get permission from Brian to use that as an epigraph. The poem is called Still Life with Helicopters. Almost 2,000 years before Leonardo da Vinci imagined a machine 
whose screw-like overhead, overhead motor could lift the machine into vertical flight. Children in China played with bamboo toys whose propellers, thin and light as dragonfly wings, were set on a sharpened stick and spun into the wonder of an object spiraling in the air. These toys were brought back to Europe by early travelers, where they gave dreams to certain men whose names are now an ornate inventory on the Wikipedia page that I am looking at. Mikhail Lomonosov, Christian Delanoy, George Cayley, Alphonse Pinot, Gustave de Ponton Demacourt, Enrico Forlanini, Jacques and Louis Breguet, Jacob Elhammer, Paul Cornu, and most dashing of all, Raul Pateras Vescara de Castelluccio. Ponton Damacourt coined the term helicopter from the Greek words for helix and wing. In time, in no time at all, these dreamers and their dream contraptions led to other names, Airbus, Augusta Westland, Sikorsky Aircraft, Boeing Vertol, Bell Helicopter, Mitsubishi, Kawasaki, Fuji Heavy Industries, and dozens of other aircraft manufacturers in the world. In 1974, Airbus introduced the AS350, also known as the A-Star, a best-selling helicopter offering high-performance, enhanced maneuverability, and reduced pilot workload. One popular use of the A-STAR is to provide aerial observation and support to ground units, which must be what the Oakland Police Department helicopter is doing now, while the protesters swarm onto the 580 freeway and shut it down, protesting the grand jury's decision in Ferguson, Missouri, not to indict the police officer who killed Michael Brown. The police and news helicopters are what I hear as I sit at my desk, the desk and its world of things, the black notebook, the pencils, the loose change, the movie stubs, the paper clips, the fortune cookie slips, the green paperweight, and the little glass utopia inside it, and my copy, a brown girl dreaming. So I'm going to read two more. I loved what you did with the Robert Frost. I, I, I'm doing the same thing with this next poem. The title of this poem is The Grasshopper and the Cricket. And it's a riff on the famous poem by Keats, a sonnet by Keats called On the Grasshopper and the Cricket. And, and you all know that poem because it has that great first line, the poetry of earth is never dead. Yeah? So I, I wanted to write a, a poem that was responding to that in some way. The Grasshopper and the Cricket. The poetry of earth is a 90-year-old woman in front of a slot machine 
in a casino in California. She's wearing a gray dress, her sharp red lipstick in two lines across her mouth, put there by a daughter. Like Gertrude Stein's, her hair is cut very close. Nearby is her wheelchair, painted blue like a boy's bicycle. It is a weekday in March, and the casino is the size of a hangar that could house a dozen airplanes. But it is thousands of machines that fill the eye, an event of light and color. The sentences she now speaks are like the sentences of Gertrude Stein, but without the ironies of art. Time is like a compressed accordion, the farthest points now near, more present than the present. Waiting, I am at the food court, reading a magazine article about the languages that the world is losing. The languages spoken only by a few remaining people, or by one remaining person, or lost completely, except for the grainy recordings in archives, mysterious as the sounds made by extinct birds. The reels on her slot machine spin. Their symbols never match. She is playing the one-cent slots, and her money will go far into the afternoon. And because waiting is thinking, I am thinking of the eternity Keats writes about in his sonnet about the grasshopper and the cricket, seizing never in the hedges and in the meadows, in the evening stove, the grasshopper of summer, the cricket of winter. This is the last one. Thank you all very much for, for listening. Um, what I need to mention about this last one is that I grew up in Oakland, California, and uh, my parents have, have lived in the same house for almost 40 years now. And so I go back to this house quite a bit. It's the house that I grew up in. And it's a house that feels very much haunted, but, but it's haunted in an interesting way in that it's haunted by past lives that I've had there other than other people's lives. So I wanted to write a poem that, that described that haunting somehow. Ode with Interruptions. Someone is in the kitchen washing the dishes. Someone is in the living room watching the news. Someone in a bedroom is holding a used stamp with tweezers and adding it to his collection. Someone is scolding a dog, barking now for decades, a different dog for each of the decades. Someone is reading the paper and listening to a baseball game on the radio at the same time. At the base of the altar, you drop some coins into a wooden box and the lights reveal the vast, worn painting in front of you. The holy subject is illuminated for a few minutes before it is dim again. There are churches all over Italy where you can do this. The smell of incense, the smell of stone. 
Someone is taking the ashes out of the small cave of the fireplace, though this might have been a hundred years ago, when, we, when the house was new and we didn't live in it. Someone is writing a letter on thin blue paper. Someone is putting down the needle on a spinning record, just so. On the couch, someone is sleeping. Upstairs, someone is looking into the bathroom mirror. While we were waiting for my sister's surgery to finish, I walked around the hospital and came across a waiting room that had an enormous aquarium. The black fish with red stripes, the yellow fish with blue stripes, the triangle fish, the cylinder fish, the little orange schools, and the cellophane glints of their turns in the box of water among arrangements of coral, that city of bones. Someone is walking down the creaking staircase in the dark, a hand sliding on the rail. Someone is on the telephone, which means nobody else can use it for another hour. Someone is in his room doing homework. Someone is reading in her room. Someone is talking to the gray wall. Someone is talking to the gray wall. In summer, on a hot afternoon, someone peels at a corner of wallpaper and sees only more wallpaper underneath. I used to think that to write poems, to make any kind of art, meant trying to transcend the prosaic elements of the self, to arrive at some essential plane of the self where poems were supposed to succeed. I was wrong. Thank you. Hello. I want to echo the thanks uh, to, well, thank you, Beth, for organizing this. It's great to read with you guys. And um, also, I'd like to echo thanks to the Guggenheim Foundation because of the Guggenheim and why you gave me leave. And because, and why you gave me leave, I have new poems. So I'm going to do something I never do, which is read only new poems. Scary. This is my book. If you want it, you can get it at Copper Canyon table over there. Um, okay. Um, I'm working on a book called Soft Targets, and it is, I'm hoping to hand it over to Copper Canyon this summer. NYU has a program in Paris for writers, so I spend six weeks there every year, and we've been there during a lot of the recent terrorist attacks. So these poems came out of that to begin with. And like my other books, um, it's in lyric sequence, so there are little sections like this, and I'll pause in between them. Soft targets. When we arrived in Paris, the corners were empty, the people uneasy, the future unlikely. Still there was bread on the plate, still wine. Still we arranged to meet, though the streets filled with migrants, and the French stepped over them en route to bakeries and cafes. Summer seemed to hover along the Seine, and the city had become a home of sorts, though of late too much flame and breaking. White blossoming, the days threaded along, and we allowed ourselves to be buttoned in by them. I had a thought, but it turned autumn, turned cold. I had a body, unwearied, vital, despite the funeral and everything. 
especially in snow, especially at dusk and after, a quiet nolita of streets and soft falling elsewhere, a simultaneous singing on. Belleville, Republique, Odeon, the globe, ample with bodies, covered in graves and gardens, potholes and water, an ardent river we walk together, a wine and rising breeze. Much trouble at hand, yet the lilies still, and friendship, and more lush life before the snuff-out begins in earnest. Eros, Eros. In Paris we were and chose to stay all night in a lovely and seraphic cocktail haze, despite the blacked-out theater, the shuttered panes behind which the dying lay dying. Yet we were breathing and breathing and breathing. All summer we sat with our backs to the street, letting time pass trying but getting nowhere mostly, lying all afternoon in the grass as if green and insect were the world. I am, I am, and you are, you are, we wrote, until the paper seemed a tree again, and we walked beneath it greener and unsullied afresh. In a July of the sun it was, we came to rest on the riverbanks, pleasure-seeking, yet finding a bloodlight flooding what we'd gone to see. Massive powers that be what will be. We smoke our pipes to forget you. And mildly now we bide our time, the violence and real cities under siege, but also filled this morning with coffee drinkers, office workers, waiters, and the like. Golden we were in the moment of conception and arrived alive as if we always would be. A breath leaves the body and wishes it could return, maybe. The news to the left and right of us, rich with failure, terror, dither, the bloated moon in constant charge of us like vapor, running ourselves down into the fern-deep sleep that sends us up again midnight inside a room of dread, a vision of it startled and unscrimmed. And this did frame our constituency that summer, even in our cozy homes, even in a painless state, on the eternity downriver, O oh, oblivion. Poor fucks we are, breathing mindlessly as the marsh grass floods, rivers filling with fish that can't live here anymore, the fauna, flora, all faked, all spoiled the planet, a, comb a combative gothic cast to everything. Weak and disordered become the governments. Disquiet rules us now. Onward, I thought, and so we were obscured. All night we stood by the river, gazing at the, at the gorgeous lights and wished for a benevolent world. It was good getting drunk in the undulant city, whiskey lopping off the day's fear. Dawn came and had an element of Xanax. Dust came and we dumbed ourselves down. Where there were brides, grooms, bored boy soldiers with iPhones and guns. I'm a soft target, you're a soft target. And the city has a hundred, hundred thousand softs. This phase, it's a phasing in. Scan for an exit, a doorway, a stair. It's a sing of routine, a sing of fear. Our big mouths could be shut up with just a shot or two. The pervious skin and softness of the face, the wrist inners and hips and the lips, 
The rose tongue, the global body, its infinite permute softnesses, soft targets, soft readers, drinkers, pedestrians in rain. In the failing light, we walked out into it, and now we share a room with it. Would you like to read to me in the soft? Would you like to enter me in the soft? Would you like a lunch of me in the soft, in the long delirium of soft? The good news is we have each other. The bad news is Kalashnikov assault rifles, a submachine gun, pistols, ammunition, and four boxes containing thousands of small steel balls. Kitten is a soft target. She's very young and lots of stress. Know her siblings, know her mom. You're a soft target, kitty cat. And night's a soft target and all of us within it. And Osama shot dead in his pajamas. And everyone on the Brooklyn-bound F as the man removes a bomb from his bag, a square of chocolate he detonates in his mouth. Mama was a soft target in her fleshly nightgown. Despite hostile, despite sick, she went for it and birthed a soft target. Her mini-soft dropped one, one spring, and she too is soft. She is soft, too soft, her tummy plumping with blood. Will we ever run out of days, soft asks. Oma was a soft target in Frankfurt, 1938. Got her soft the fuck out of there. Smuggled out her egg purse to become us. And so it ended, and so it didn't end. If she'd been distracted, if, she, if she'd lived blindly, if she'd been dazed or dullard or out of luck, kissed her dog goodbye, snuck a candy in her packet, in her pocket, Ran past the door of her school, her doctor's office, her favorite park, the house where the boy she secretly loved lived. Was made to wade into the night like a swimmer, thought she could not swim. Sybaritic afterlife, I don't crave you. I like daylight. I like crowds. I don't think it will be charming underground. The silence will be sudden, then last. What sheep will shrink? There won't be any pretty pity. We'll never peaches there or air. We'll be so squashed and sour there. I don't want a cold place. Don't want a threadbare clamp and consequence all old. Our loneliness will be prolonged, then go too far. Oh, fuck, it's true. Then nothing left of you. There were real officers in the street, but they were doing it wrong. One winked at me. Another was purely conceptual. One thought to himself as I walked by, you little bitch. Bulge knobs of their guns made them oral, made them real big machismo. Even the skinny ones, even the abstract. A certain beauty in the duty of it. The absence of pleasantries, cold and uniformed. Meanwhile, he was broken. She was, con she was concussed. And we returned home gilded with what? Safety. In advance of danger, animals agitate. When the time comes, all of this will be only shouts and disturbance. So I'm going to read something even newer. It's hard to read something new. Like if I were reading from this book, I could just practically have it memorized, and it's hard to read these new poems, but I'm, I'm trying. Um, okay. Uh, I wrote this like yesterday and this morning, which is not a good sign. I'm going to read it anyway. I got off the train in the city, and I just, um, I couldn't stand it. Our King. 
This is my plangent note to the ambassadors of love. All dreaming now is retroactive. The government solipsistic, a scary station on a defunct radio. The radioactive someday is here. Our king is a bestseller, a genius of industry, an ego to deflate, stalemate. Our king is a crank, a crook. Our king, it is incongruous. Our king is improper, ill-equipped. How is it that we pushed the handle and he popped out, toasted? And now he sits at the head of our table. Can we be excused? He's a capitalist conglomerate, an x-ray of need. Stealthily, he moves himself up the flagpole, raising the trees. Let's resume. Our king from the press table demands his order in our courts, wears his wig of misdemeanor, sets his bears loose in our gardens, pleads us guilty and says so and says no and so again, in his pajamas, no less, in his crown. Desperate he is in general, ridiculous, not sublime. Coffee won't cure this, nor cruciferous vegetables, nor time. This malignancy trumps up, runs deep and deeper into crime. No good our legs, no good religion, hope, or signs. Meantime, we were taking stock. Meantime, his lies. Meantime, knife sharpening, fault finding, fault finding dictating, hand wringing. Act one, a toddler man, a boy, beginning to scribble. The rest of us stay put. Act two, what the hell are you doing here, Mr. Bumble? And so the indecent, bogus shame fest begins. Our king, he is all he was cracked up to be. Will boys be boys? Leave it all to me. To be female on coronation night is a difficulty. Her skin under his thumb is a sick house. It's too much. Our king on paper, our king in moonlight, our king in the outflowing tide, our king on my daughter. His weight drops in midnight and pings her little bed. A doomsday porphyro, something more, a flesh struggling to be man. There is no excuse for the smug frog of him. Our king, no, you aren't. Her king, not at all. He's deaf to summer and doesn't laugh, takes one stand, then another, this by his hands, then that. We had liquor and then some, tried to disregard our broken parts. Idle life, appallingly circular, Mr. Zilch and his missus. Can we be thug enough? Can we put them out? Come quickly, come everyone. The brothers are punctured, the dogs full of holes. We have no moment to collect ourselves. Forget all the quarrels and pretexts and what progress, never. And now what will be? I'm not going to argue with you, I'm alarmed. We're a plague on the ice and deserve contempt. Materialism, greed, corporate blah, blah, blah. Pox in the mountain, crush on the, pox in the fountain, crush on the mountain. There ain't no bravos here. Comrades, commend yourselves on a job very poorly done. I think someone has done grave injury. I think person or persons. I think we're losing by default. Goodbye to the governor, to all governors. Pure foible, pure metastatic mass, the pallor of it so sad. Keep your passport handy, keep cash, keep water and batteries, collect your meds and loved ones just in case. 
Just in case, walk, then run. Just in case, eat in a hurry, wear flats and no makeup. Cuff your pants, learn how to swim. Just in case, take off your dress, your body, your voice, just in case, and silence your phone. Stay off the beach, the street, the planet. These romps, they have grown a bit less carefree. Oh, feminine, oh, skin in a crushed glow of soft. Oh, corporeal defeat, can we not wriggle free? There must be some mistake. Our king, he's put a race on us, and now the clock flicks forward, stares us down. microphone's really good. I'm kind of tall. I'm not very tall, but I'm kind of tall, so you get all excited when you get a good microphone. Um, I am really grateful to Beth Bachman for organizing this and for asking me to be a part of it and for being such a wonderful poet and for being my sister at the very beginning. Um, our first books came out at the very same time. Uh, so I always feel like uh, every time uh, I get a poem in a place in print, I'm like my sister's like holding my hand. Uh, so I really appreciate her. Um, and I'm also grateful to Rick and to Deborah. Uh, it is an honor to be uh, on any list that includes their names. Their poems have meant so much to my life and to my work. Uh, and obviously, I am grateful to the Guggenheim Foundation. Well, for the money, <laughs> which is which is no small thing. Um, you know, um, many of us are. Although I've had these questions for a long time, many of us are having, uh, for the first time, some questions about capitalism. Um, any way you look at it, it is how we live now. Uh, I'm sure y'all are doing everything you can to change that. Um, so I, I, I like it when um, an artist who has been at work can somehow be recognized for that work as work through compensation, which will help them eat and keep the lights on. And I think of that as a very important thing. Um, I think everyone deserves to be compensated and properly paid for the work that they do. Uh, so I am grateful for the Guggenheim. And now that I'm thinking about that, I meant to tell you all this. Make sure, uh, you know, you'll stay. You've been, you, you know, you, many of us got here yesterday. We'll leave Sunday. Um, so, you know, tip the people who are going to clean your rooms for all those days. This first poem is um, it's a poem I, I mean to be about the supposed idea of the universal or about universality. Um, and so I had to use an experience that we're all familiar with. The poem is actually about um, a time in our lives that we all have in common. Um, it's that time of our lives where we were told that we should be having um, uh, the, the time of our lives, that we should be having a good time, that, it, that these are our best years. Um, we even take pictures for almost every event that comes up during this period, and uh, we put on smiles. 
as if we are happy, but at the same time, we are all miserable and trying to figure out during this time uh, why we are so miserable, why everyone in the world seems to hate us. Um, the, 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 the best phrase that I could think of to characterize this period of life is uh, high school. The microscopes, heavy and expensive, hard and black, with bits of chrome for points of pride. They looked like baby cannons, the real children of war, and I hated them for that, for what our teacher said they could do. And then I hated them for what they did when we gave up on stealing looks at each other's bodies to press a left or right eye into the barrel and see our actual selves taken down to a cell, then blown back up again. Every atomic thing about a piece of my hair beneath one slide just as unimportant as anyone else's growing in that science class where I learned what little difference God saw if God saw me. It was the start of one fear, a tiny one, not much worth mentioning, narrow like a pencil touched tucked behind the ear, but by certain grace lost when I reached for it to stab someone I secretly loved. A bigger boy who'd advance through those tight hallways, shoving some without saying, excuse me, more an insult than a battle included on an American history exam. Red coats, red blood cells, red bricked education. I can't remember the exact date or grade, but I know when I began ignoring slight alarms that move others to charge or retreat. I'm a kind of camouflage. I never let on when I don't understand or when I'm scared of conflicts so old they seem to amount to nothing. Dust particles left behind, really, like the viral geography of an expanding country or like the most recent name of an occupied territory. I imagine, you imagine, when you see a speck like me walking with a white woman. As a human being, there is the happiness you have and the happiness you deserve. They sit apart from one another the way you and your mother sat on opposite ends of the sofa after an ambulance came to take your father away. Some good doctor will stitch him up, and soon an aunt will arrive to drive your mother to the hospital, where she will settle next to him forever, as promised. She holds the arm of her seat as if she could fall, as if it is the only sturdy thing. And it is, since you've done what you always wanted. You fought your father and won, marred 
he'll have a scar he can see all because of you. And your mother, the only woman you ever cried for, must tend to it as a bride tends to her vows, forsaking all others, no matter how sore the injury No matter how sore the injury has left you, you sit understanding yourself as a human being, finally free now that nobody's got to love you. This next poem is written um, thinking about the deaths and um, being confounded by the circumstances surrounding the deaths of people like Jesus Huerta in North Carolina and Victor White in Louisiana and Sandra Bland in Texas. Bullet points. I will not shoot myself in the head and I will not shoot myself in the back and I will not hang myself with a trash bag and if I do, I promise you I will not do it in a police car while handcuffed or in the jail cell of a town I only know the name of because I have to drive through it to get home. Yes, I may be at risk, but I promise you, I trust the maggots and the ants and the roaches who live beneath the floorboards of my house to do what they must to any carcass more than I trust an officer of the law of the land to shut my eyes like a man of God might or to cover me with a sheet so clean my mother could have used it to tuck me in. When I kill me, I will kill me the same way most Americans do. I promise you, cigarette smoke or a piece of meat on which I choke or so broke I freeze in one of these winters we keep calling worst. I promise that if you hear of me dead anywhere near a cop, then that cop killed me. He took me from us and left my body, which is, no matter what we've been taught, greater than the settlement a city can pay a mother to stop crying, and more beautiful than the brand new shiny bullet fished from the folds of my brain. When I was a kid, I was in love with riddles. So I've been trying to write a, um, a poem that's a riddle since about 2002 and, uh, and not succeeding. And I think I wasn't succeeding because I always knew the answer to the riddle. So here's a poem where I don't know the answer to the riddle. Riddle. We do not recognize the body of Emmett Till. We do not know the boy's name, nor the sound of his mother wailing. We have never heard a mother wailing. We do not know the history of ourselves in this nation. We do not know the history of ourselves on this planet because we do not have to know what we believe we own. We believe we own your bodies, but have no use for your tears. We destroy the body that refuses use. We use maps we did not draw. We see a sea, so cross it. 
We see a moon, so land there. We love land so long as we can take it. Shh, we can't take that sound. What is a mother wailing? We do not recognize music until we can sell it. We sell what cannot be bought. We buy silence. Let us help you. How much does it cost to hold your breath underwater? Wait, wait, what are we? What, what, what on earth are we? Um, the myth of Ganymede, um, as we all know, although I do have a question about this and maybe somebody can tell me later. I don't understand, you know, when we see gr Greek names, we do a certain kind of a thing with pronunciation. So I don't understand why we say Ganymede instead of saying Ganymede or Ganymedes. Do y'all understand what I'm saying? So maybe somebody will explain to me why later, because I know y'all are real smart people. But in the meantime, um, in the in the Greek myth about, about Ganymede, uh, as we know, um, Zeus is uh, attracted to uh, the prince Ganymede and turns himself into uh, a great bird, an eagle, and takes Ganymede up to Mount Olympus, where Ganymede becomes not only uh, yet another person raped by the king of the gods, but uh, the hand, um, the cupbearer to the gods, the, the, the person who serves nectar and ambrosia to the gods. There is an alternate uh, version of that myth, and I think I'll get to that alternate version uh, in this next poem. Ganymede. It's the police. Ganymede. A man trades his son for horses. That's the version I prefer. I like the safety of it. No one at fault. Everyone rewarded. God gets the boy. The boy becomes immortal. His father rides until grief sounds as good as the gallop of an animal born to carry those who patrol and protect our inherited kingdom. When we look at myth this way, nobody bothers saying rape. I mean, don't you want God to want you? Don't you dream of someone with wings taking you up? And when the master comes for our children, he smells like the men who own stables in heaven. That far terrain between promise and apology. No one has to convince us. The people of my country believe we can't be hurt if we can be bought. Um, you know, I don't know where y'all are from, so in the South, I, I mean, you know, I don't know what people know. I never know what people know, but I know, I mean, I, I think this is regional um, and not racial, uh, but it might be both. It might be regional and like it might have something to do with like me being black. But when I was growing up, the word lie was a cuss word. Has anybody else had this experience? Because people who haven't had this experience are looking at me crazy. You know how like you, you can't say shit, you can't say fuck. So when some is it just me? Will you raise your hand? Because I don't want people to think anybody else. So there's oh there's a white guy, and then okay yeah. 
So, so yeah. So other this y'all are from the south. Is it southern? Yeah. So in the south, you know, they add to the list of cuss words. Um, you sort of need to know that, I think, for this poem, because it, it'll get to a point where it's like, why is he saying that? Okay. Isn't that something, man? Um, second language. It's really funny because I was telling a joke about this. I was telling somebody about how, like, the whole time I was growing up, nobody cared if I said the N-word. Like, nobody. Like, my mom would be like, yeah, child, blah, 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 N-word. And I'd say, yeah, that N-word, blah, blah, blah. You know, we would just talk to each other this way. But if I said lie, my mom would knock me out of a window. Isn't that amazing? Anyway. I just, y'all aren't fascinated by this. I find that fascinating. Second language. You come with a little black stream tied around your tongue, knotted to remind where you came from and why you left behind photographs of people whose names need no pronouncing. How do you say God now that the night rises sooner? How dare you wake to work before any alarm? I am the man asking, the great-grandson made so by the dead tenant farmers promised a plot of land to hew. They thought they could own the dirt they were bound to. In that part of the country, a knot is something you get after getting knocked down. And story means lie. In your part of the country, class means school. This room where we practice words like rope in our hope to undo your tongue so you can tell a lie or break a promise or grow like a story. So what time is it? I should read. Well, I guess I can read two more, right? I'll read two more. Is that okay? The hammers. They sat on the dresser like anything I put in my pocket before leaving the house. I even saw a few tiny ones tilted against the window of my living room, little metal threads with splinters for handles. They leaned like those teenage boys at the corner who might not be teenage boys because they ask for dollars in the middle of the April day and because they knock at 10 a.m. Do I need help lifting something heavy? Yard work? I wondered if only I saw the hammers. The teenage boys visiting seemed not to care that they lay on the floor lit by the TV. I'd have covered them up with rugs, with dry towels and linen, but their claw and sledge and ball-peen heads shone in the dark, which is at least a view in the dark. And their handles meant my hands, striking surfaces, getting shelves up. Finally, one stayed in my tub, slowing the drain. I found another propped near the bulb in the refrigerator. Wasn't I hungry? Why have them there if I could not use them? If I could not look at my own reflection in the mirror and take one to the temple and knock myself out? Stand. Peace on this planet. 
our guns glowing hot. We lay there together as if we were getting something done. It felt like planting a garden or planning a meal for a people who still need feeding. All that touching or barely touching, not saying much, not adding anything, the cushion of it, the skin and occasional sigh, all seemed like work worth mastering. I'm sure somebody died while we made love. Somebody killed somebody black. I thought then of holding you as a political act. I may as well have held myself. We didn't stand for one thought, didn't do a damn thing. And though you left me, I'm glad. We didn't. Thank you all so much. And thank you to the sound guy in the back. Thanks, man. This is good stuff.